Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm also joined by Dr. Paul Jean, uh, instructor at New Testament and senior pastor here at New City Presbyterian Church. Hey, Paul. Hey, Scott. Also joined by Dr. Grace Sutanto, Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology. Hey, Gray. Hey, Scott. Great to be here. Joined by Tommy Keene, Professor of New Testament and Academic Dean. Hey, Tommy. Hey, Scott. Great to be here. And joined by Dr. Peter Lee, Associate Professor of Old Testament and Dean of Students. Hey, Dr. Lee. Hey there, Dr. Red. Good to be with you again. Great to have you. Well, today what we want to do is talk about a philosophy of teaching. We want to talk about our pedagogy. How do we think about what's happening in the classroom? How do we think about this thing that we've been called to do, which is theological education? And I can't think of uh, of five better brothers to sit down and talk about this with than the ones on this call. However, I do want to start with Dr. Lee. He's the most experienced of us all. He's been doing this in the seminary context for 18 years and uh, actually started RTS Washington back in 2002, back when I was in my second year of seminary down at RTS Orlando. Um, So he's been doing this for the longest and we all want to glean uh, some wisdom from how Dr. Lee thinks about the work that he's doing in the classroom. So I want to start with you, Peter. Can you give us a kind of broad overview of your philosophy of teaching? Uh, Yeah, I think this is a a great subject and uh, definitely worthwhile to talk about here as a faculty. I'd be, uh, of course, eager to hear what what all of you have to say about it as well. For me, uh, when it comes to uh, the classroom, my, my first concern is, of course, comprehension and and competency, to make sure that uh, students are aware of the Old Testament biblical material. Uh, What I found generally is that there does tend to be, in some areas of the Old Testament, a little bit more than others, a a general um, struggle in terms of just uh, knowledge. You know, what does the Bible say about the book of Genesis or or more so like the book of Proverbs, and just to try to fill in some of those gaps. It's important to know how to uh, help them maneuver through this, how to interpret these texts in a way that is, um, that is meaningful. So that's another important thing that, uh, that I have uh, when, when I work in the classroom. And then finally, character. You know, these texts meant something for God's people in, in the ancient days as well as in our days today. It's something that should be uh, meaningful, that should help us grow, that should give us a deeper appreciation of who God is, what he has done in the past, what he continues to do for us now, uh, what he'll do for us uh, continually in the future. And that is something that uh, should be a blessing to us now as we grow in our uh, communion with the Lord. And I want, that to, I want to see that in our students as well, not just a lot of cognitive, cerebral uh, data, but uh, truth that is meaningful in a, in a very powerful and, and a life-changing way. In, in many ways, it's exactly an extension of, uh, of, of what I do in my own personal life. I, I study the Word of God, uh, and it's exciting, and it's fantastic. Uh, and it makes a deep impact on my life. And so I just try to share with the students what uh, has made a radical change for me and my perception of life, share that with them so that in hopes that they will have just as great a knowledge for the love of God, if not more so, and learn how to apply that in their lives as well as in the uh, lives of the people that they will be ministering to eventually. Yeah, that question of relevance is is a huge one, isn't it? Because that's the one that I, I think particularly in theology, it's it's ironic and sad that usually relevance or the relevance of the subject matter is questioned. You know, there's kind of a a typical view of theological studies that sees it as kind of irrelevant, right? And you're reading ancient, whether you're talking about reading ancient texts and dead languages, or you're talking about Latin technical jargon in the area of scholastics and systematic theology, 
it's odd that there's this popular opinion in a way that theology is irrelevant, that you need to really strain to make this relevant. And I have a sometimes a hard time even explaining to you know the person on the plane who asks you what you do, the fact that this is actually deeply relevant. You know, and, and praise God, a lot of my students, particularly if you're coming to RTS, that probably selects out for a certain student, a certain student profile. But our students typically show up to class, I think, with that already, you know, baked in the cake, right? The idea that they, they're not just to learn some kind of, you know, inventory of ideas, but that they're there to learn something that's deeply relevant for them. I really, I, I realize it affects the way that I teach well, Peter. Peter, I was wondering when you said uh, one of the things that you aimed for was character, is that something like, in the classroom, character relevance, do you self-consciously incorporate that? Like, okay, I need to aim at practical application, how this affects our lives, or is that something that you kind of hope that in the course of teaching Isaiah, they pick up? How do you, how do you incorporate that methodologically? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a little of both. You know, there are times when the text is pretty applicable. It's hard, to, for example, it's hard to teach Proverbs and not be uh, immediately applicable. The intent of the text is to be uh, something relevant and meaningful for your for the very next day or even for the very next moment. But there are times where, you know, uh, when you're teaching about, like, for example, a, a biblical theology of creation, uh, that may seem a bit ethereal, abstract. I doubt it was taken that way by the Old Testament Israelites when they uh, were reading these texts. So what what impact does that have then on us and how we grow in our understanding of God and what he has done for us? I mean, my uh, Ed Clowney once used to say that the oftentimes the greatest application is identification. That is identification in Christ, in union with Christ. In that sense, application is not necessarily something that you do. It's more of an understanding of who you are or who you have become by the redemptive work of God. And I found that always so meaningful. Uh, so in other words, when you, when you tell a person, you know, this is what God did in creation. Your, our work, um, his work in salvation is essentially a new creation. And therefore, you are a new creation. That's theologically rich, but it is... It is profound in understanding who we now are that makes a real impact in our understanding. This is what God did for me. You see, it's hard not to worship even in that moment when you're hearing that. So for me, application of the classroom is not, it isn't necessarily a portion of the lecture, you know, where you talk 30 minutes about theology and then talk 10 minutes about application of that theology. I don't really try to do it that way. To me, the the theology and relevance or the application or the, or the character development is integrated as if you're doing all of that at the same time by going to your lectures. So you can talk about the doctrine of our union with Christ, and you do it in a way that is satisfying both intellectually and heartfelt at the same time. Uh, because that doctrine, that truth has a way of doing that to, 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 to be something that is meaningful. I think it's important to do that because but by, by having students see that demonstrated by us in the class, this is how they can now do it in the pulpit or in the interaction with God's people on the Lord's Day or any fellowship uh, gathering. And that just helps uh, and encourages our students who are going to be you know, engaged in ministry in some capacity to know how to talk about truth and doctrine in a way that is not just academic or just intellectual or head knowledge, but truth that is meaningful to life, orthodoxy that transforms orthopraxy. You know, the way uh, that we live our lives is derived uh, directly from our doctrine, our, our, our understanding of truth. And the two always needs to be uh, put together. That's sort of one reason why I love our, our, our sort of vision statement of the seminary, this mind for truth, heart for God idea, because the two are so integrated. And, and I think that's the way, at least that's the way I try to do it in my lectures, is, is to not feel like I need to have a point where I say, now, you know, here's what I just talked about. Now, here's how you can make it meaningful in your life or in the lives of your people. There are times when we do that, but most of the time, 
uh, what I try to do is just to show them that the doctrine I just gave you or the instruction I just gave you is in and of, in and of itself meaningful if you understand it appropriately. And that's sort of the task that I feel like I have to try to help them appreciate uh, these truths, these precious truths that we have in a real life-transforming, heartfelt way. It strikes me that that's one of those, this is one of those areas where our field is a little bit unique in some ways. You know, when, when you're learning math, we're not aiming for the heart as much, um, though I feel like we're going to get some calls from mathematicians now. But it's part of understanding scripture and part of understanding God's word to us is to necessarily understand how it impacts the heart and how it addresses my soul uh, and my relationship with, with Christ in particular. I agree. I guess, you know, our equivalent to math would be Hebrew. <laughs> if I could be that direct is, uh, you know, part of the challenge for me as, as I teach Hebrew, and I'm curious if, if, you know, if Paul and, and you, Tommy, run into similar problems with Greek. I, I, I get the sense that students walk into Greek kind of excited because it's New Testament, it looks familiar. Generally, this, the reaction I have with students with Hebrew is that it's foreign, it's scary, I'll never learn it, and, and they don't see the immediate relevance. And so, um, for me, I, I, I love teaching Hebrew. I, it's, if I taught biblical languages for a living, I'd be, I'd be as happy as a clam. For me, a part of the goal is, and this is generally a, a, an approach that I take in the classes, is not just to help them learn Hebrew or help them understand biblical theology. It's to help them love Hebrew or love biblical theology. And they're going to love it if they see that I love it. They will love uh, biblical theology if they see that I love biblical theology. And that, that sort of transfer of passion and zeal is one thing that I really try to do. Peter, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but you, you do teach Hebrew for a living. Well, not just Hebrew. <laughs> okay. No. Okay. Good call. I meant, I meant I meant just Hebrew, but okay. Uh, Everybody else, how do you guys do what we're talking about here? How do you how do you apply this? I guess I'm trying to get into the details of how you apply this to the hearts of the students. How do you take the subject matter that we're talking about that we all agree is very relevant and apply this in a way that our students are going to be able to receive it and hear it in that kind of, in that heart. That's part of the reason I asked Peter that question is, you know, how self-conscious are we doing that? How, how methodologically is that in, integrated into the classroom? For, for me, I'm just thinking about kind of how I was educated, how I was trained. And, you know, there's not a, there's ironically not a class on how to teach a class for, for Matt, for master's level work. Um, so you just kind of do what your professors did. And for me, that was very much the lecture model. My professors had this material, they gave it to me, and then it was you know my job to the, apply it to pastoral ministry, to my life, to, to the heart. Um, and you did that on your own time. That doesn't happen necessarily in the classroom. And, you know, as I started teaching, I wrestled with that. I kind of started with that approach, but then realized that both myself and students needed time to process these things and needed time to kind of figure out and map it onto their own lives and map it onto my own life. And so increasingly in my courses, I would start carving out time for discussion. I was very wary about that because this, you know, discussion type courses in my experience were quite dull. You know, I didn't sign up to uh, to take seminary classes to hear what my neighbor has to say. I wanted to hear what the professor had to say. Uh, so it took some, some time to kind of figure out how to do that well. But now I, I can't imagine class without it. I can't imagine a, a time where we're just getting the material and then not doing anything with it. We, we've got to do something with it. And he, for, as a professor, hearing what students are doing with it in their own ministries and in their own lives and, and processing it in, in their own context has been invaluable. I feel like I've learned an incredible amount in the, just in the time where we're processing it live, both practically and in terms of 
you know, the, the application to the heart and to ministry. So does that usually happen? When we talk about processing it live, I suspect that's usually happening in the classroom, like while the material is being discussed. Are there other ways to kind of help them process that either in the classroom or beyond, kind of in, in your assignments perhaps or in projects outside or even in the way that, you know, now that we're all on Zoom, we have these, uh, these discussions on the forum online that you're supposed to be using. Um, how do you all think about processing material outside of the classroom? One thing that I've started to do in my classes, for, for most of the classes, is switch kind of from a, this is just one practical switch that I've made, is switch from a, a, a traditional final exam to a more, well, very concretely, to an open book, you know the answers beforehand type of response. Uh, and so like for, for Hebrews to Rev, I'll give kind of five or six standard kinds of questions that students need to process when they're thinking about this material. They're just kind of typical questions. Some of them are pastoral. How do you deal with perseverance and uh, perseverance in the church, for example, in Hebrews? Some of them are practical and some of them are theological, but they have all term to kind of work through them and to apply them to particular case studies. And so the focus isn't on memorizing the material, but rather working through secondary issues and coming to a conclusion, coming to kind of cognitive rest about certain kinds of topics that they might be wrestling with. Uh, And again, I, I would have loved to have more time to do that in my own seminary education rather than trying to figure out what the pastor or the professor wanted to hear to spend my time kind of oh there's this this issue that i've never gotten to get settled on let me let me settle my brain on that let me let me think through that and mull that over for a bit to come to some sort of credo on that issue that this or that topic yeah, I tend to think of the assignments outside of class as forming habits, right, that you would take with you toward your ministry and for the rest of your life or for their study. And so when I think about what John Webster said, for example, in his Culture of Theology, he talks about the culture of the theological institution has to be organically connected to the practice of reading. And so I have a great conviction that we should be assigning primary texts and we should be assigning a sufficient amount of it such that the students have to feel like they have to read every day. And at first, maybe that this is a chore outside of the classroom. I hope that it would actually cultivate a sense of necessity that you have to be reading every day, that this is something that you get to do rather than something that you have to do. Though maybe at first it feels like you just have to do it. But I also think, you know, something that I was really thankful about through my uh, undergraduate and seminary years after I got to my PhD was that it felt weird to not be reading every day. I felt like something was missing when I wasn't reading. I felt like I, my brain wasn't being stimulated. I felt lethargic. There was something missing in life precisely because for you know six, seven years, I was reading every day. And so when I got to the doctoral program and you know Edinburgh in, the, in the, a lot of the PhD seminars and master's level seminars, they had a pretty loose reading schedule and they had a very loose reading list. They didn't actually assign pages per week, right? They just gave a list of recommended readings and you just have to go figure it out yourselves. And I actually felt liberated by that because then I get to just read however much I want. And I felt like this is something that I could really sink my teeth into. And so I think looking back now, you know, for those six, seven years uh, before the PhD program, it really prepared me for that discipline of reading every day. And now afterwards, you know, after you're done with all your schooling, after I became a pastor for a while, it felt weird to me when I wasn't having a book, you know, it was just a habit to bring a book wherever I went. Uh, I made sure that I had a book in my car, you know, in case somebody came late for a pastoral meeting. And so I was able to pick up the book and read for 15, 20 minutes, made sure that wherever I went, even on vacation, I try to bring a book, maybe not a theological one. Right. And I think that's because all the assignments throughout my seminary years were geared towards, hey, make sure that you read every day. If you don't read every day, you can't catch up with the assignments. And now it became a way of life. Yeah, so I think that that's a great point, Greg. Like for me, when it comes to teaching, 
have a lot of thoughts on this, but just very quickly. Uh, like Tommy, my tests, I tend to give the students at least the questions in advance. I think Peter does that as well, so that they're not wasting time trying to figure out what's on the test, but to learn the material well. But like Gray, I focus on the one hand with each class, especially if it's a content class, like Paul's letters or something. I just want the students to actually go away with one or maybe two points. And I know that sounds crazy because we're covering so much material, but it's sort of like a good sermon, like a good class will leave like students with one main point. So for instance, when I took Doctrine of God, you know, we write a whole lot of things, but I remember uh, Dr. Oliphant just saying, you know, the key to thinking about uh, theology correctly is really appreciating the creator-creature distinction. And he would talk about that all the time. And uh, years back when I think about that course, while, you know, I learned a lot of what primary resources and so forth, I think with each class, it's helpful to have one main point and then to expose the students uh, to other topics that they can explore further you know, as life uh, moves along. But like Gray, what I've done is I've tried to foster habits. Um, and so for instance, in my Paul class, I teach the students like the value of doing analytical outlines, um, like how to just analyze a letter so that you not only reflect the content, but also the flow of the letter. And uh, over the years, I've had students uh, reach out to me, uh, students that hated the analytical outlines and have said that when they look back, aside from things like union with Christ or something like that, they remember the analytical outlines the most and that those outlines have actually helped them in their continual study. And so like Gray, I don't think that our goal, and I, I don't think anyone really does this, is just to uh, flood our students with content, but really to just have one or two main points with each class to expose them to things that they can explore more later on, but especially to teach them good habits um, and that will help them to continually learn after seminary. Now, how do you all see that? We talked earlier a little bit about, Tommy, you talked about how the, the, the role model that you saw was typically lecture in your experience, how do you all modify, and this may be going back to the details of kind of how you apply this in the classroom, but how do you modify, is, is there kind of, has that idea of sort of a dialogue and helping a student not just receive a data transfer, but be a part of a conversation in which their professor is guiding them from shared, shared understanding to new understanding, right? Kind of the way I think about teaching, we start with shared understanding. Hopefully the student walks into the room with something and then we move to new uncommon ground, common ground to uncommon ground, shared to unshared. But you're in this dialogical relationship where you're bringing them along by way of teaching and conversation. How does that shape the way you lecture? Because I think all of us lecture in one way or another right do you set up little vignettes where you pause and say let's talk about this from this point of view do you throw out sort of you know fertile stories that they can respond to and, and you all know what i mean but there's like there are the stories that i know i can tell in class and it will always get a response from students you know and i know where to pepper those into my lectures to draw dialogue into application because honestly i think sometimes people need to be told like this is relevant for you right this has relevance and so they may just be thinking oh this is a class thing that i need to know for class and then suddenly by a story or by a question you show them oh no this has to do with how i talked to my family members earlier today right or how I dealt with that issue on social media, or when I was thinking about something culturally or politically or something like that. I think a lot of times they need us to sort of set a flag and say, oh, this has application in your life and show them how. But so how do you do that? Do you, have you, do you kind of have these moments that you've built in class apart from just, or maybe this is what you do. Maybe you stop at the end of the section and say any questions and that's kind of how you do it. 
Um, or do you, do you teach in a way, do you present the material in a way that at points it's meant to draw out a response from the students? So for me, I mentioned it was, it was challenging to kind of move to a more dialogic model. And, I, and I, again, I think it's because the model, when I saw that being done in the classroom, it was, it was typically of the style of, okay, now, I, now the professor's gonna ask a question and you've gotta figure out the right answer like it's a fishing kind of expedition and basically the conversation was the professor trying to manipulate you into the right answer uh, and that what that does is it shuts down discussion so i went to a um kind of more open-ended question uh asking you got to ask good questions that are open-ended this is super relevant if you're leading a Bible study or something like that. Um, it's not, the question is not, what did Paul do here? But, you know, what, but rather, what jumps out at you from the text? Or, you know, something more open-ended that has concrete answers. But, of course, the danger of doing that is, <laughs> is people can say anything they want, and you're going to lose control of the uh, of the dialogue and you've got to be willing to kind of go where the conversation goes uh, to, to some extent. And that's, that's really challenging, I think, to do in the classroom. And I'm still trying to figure, figure it out exactly. I'll build in, I'll do two types of things. One, as we, pro it's, this is easier to do in like a biblical studies class, but I'll move inductively through the text. So we'll just start with observations about this or that text. I'm not leading it anywhere. I don't have an agenda, but just what jumps out at you kinds of questions. And we'll build something from that and, and, and switching to that way of thinking of, we are building something together by observing the text corporately and see where the discussion goes. Obviously, I have, we've got material that we've got to cover, and so I'll, I'll vector that in into the discussion, and hopefully we build something somewhat structurally sound uh, by the end of, of that discussion. I'll kind of summarize and lecture, uh, as it were, as a response to that, and then we will conclude with some discussion of implications, applications, pastoral, uh, pastoral relevance, that kind of thing. Uh, so it tends to be a little bit of a hybrid in my approach, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I think the way I think about this is that to see teaching as kind of in the same continuity with preaching, and just like in preaching, I think what makes a satisfying sermon is keeping in mind the distinction between telling people something and showing them something. And I think it's when you show people that your point is convicting and important that that's when it actually stirs the heart, right? And I think that's the key to being persuasive. That's what you feel when you feel a satisfying sermon. It's not just that you're intellectually stirred, but you're also emotionally stirred as well. And so I, I try to whatever, you know, seemingly abstract doctrine we're discussing, I try to keep in mind, you know, how do I communicate this in such a way where it connects with an immediate experience that people are constantly getting, right? So one of the examples that, that I give when I talk about analogical reasoning, for example, why is analogical reasoning important given the creator-creature distinction? Well, why, is, why do we have to make a distinction between goodness as we use it to refer to God and goodness when we use it to refer to other people? Well, it's because prosperity gospel preachers have a univocal view of goodness. They try to say, well, God is much like your earthly friend. If you are a friend of somebody and you're a good friend with somebody, You'd never want them to be sick. You'd never want them to be poor. You'd want them to be prosperous and you want them to always be healthy. Well, God is just like your friend, but only bigger and better, right? So univocal reasoning is really just prosperity gospel uh, preaching. And I think when we try to bring it to that kind of effect where, okay, this is not just an abstract philosophical scholastic distinction that we're trying to retrieve here, but is is actually something you're constantly finding in everyday life i think that's the goal of your teaching and i think that's actually also the same goal as preaching that's what a good sermon would look like right you're trying hard to not only sh uh, tell them that this is important but also show them yeah i think there's a way to lecture and i've heard different models i've heard the lecturer who's kind of in the more british style where you're reading your lecture from the podium up front as if you're giving a paper 
you know, a, a conference or something like that. And then there is the lecture, and this is kind of moving on, I think, to the other thing I want to highlight about lecturing. There's the lecture that kind of seeds the direction in which you're going. In a way, there's, there's kind of a performance element to it, but you're planting in the discussion where you're going as you teach. And there's a way to do that, great to your point, where by the time you get around to a particular topic, they're already asking the right questions about the topic so that they're making the application themselves. You know, I, I regularly tell my students, and this is part of the lecture, but I, I regularly say, you're gonna notice that this class is cyclical. We're gonna keep coming around to some of the same themes. And that's not because I forgot what we talked about before, right? But that's because we're doing something here. We're, we're, we're building, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, we're building a structure and to do that, you have to keep looping back around to certain parts of the structure, right? To the walls, to the, to the load bearing pillars and that kind of thing. And if you let them know that ahead of time, they'll start looking for that repetitive nature as well and start to realize, hey, this is, this is presented in a way, I hope, that's pedagogically effective, right? That, that's helping pattern for them, not just concepts, but a pattern of thought. And I try to do that in a way where we're, we're patterning in class and that's kind of an oral because we all learn, learn in different ways. So that's sort of a verbal oral auditory patterning. And then they go home and they're looking at words on a page that I've assigned to them. And those words are, are reinforcing what was said in class and developing it in, in different directions. And then they sit down to do the exam and they have all their study questions ahead of time. And study questions are given in a way that's going to require them to go back through what they learned in class and engage with those ideas, even with some of the personal reflections that we, uh, that we dabbled in, you know, those vignettes. You know, that way they're not allowed to just drop whatever that discussion was of how this is relevant. It's not like um, in my classes, that's not, that's not the unimportant part of the class. That's also an important part of the class. Like, why is it important to you that profits uh, are not just being predictive, but profitable, right? Like, that's, that's important to you. So what does that mean to you, right? And I found that by that kind of patterning, right, that, that in some ways, rep repetitive patterning, it's like learning any other skill, you're learning a habit on how to think while also being handed the content that informs the habit, right? And hopefully you're learning along the ways how to ask the right questions. I can give these particular instances in my own education where a professor said, by the way, the thing you just learned can change everything if you let it. <laughs> you know, it'll change the way you think if you let it. Right. I remember learning back in undergrad, you know, critical thinking in terms of analysis and evaluation. And he said, I, at the end of the class, he said, I hate to tell you, but you've all now been infected with this virus that is critical thinking. And it's going to affect everything you do from here on out. And he was right. You know, I can remember walking into Catholic University, you know, before classes began, right as I was starting and, and running into uh, Michael Patrick O'Connor, who was uh, teaching Acadian there. And as we were looking at this shelf, you know, I thought I wanted, I thought I would impress him. And we were looking at this shelf that said, you know, it was a Chicago Assyrian Dictionary, which is back in the old days, this big multi-volume set. You can now get most of them for free online through PDF. Um, and uh, we were looking at it and I said, so, you know, I asked him some question and he said, I think what you mean to ask Right, and then he told me the question that I should have asked, and that was the beginning of a, of a long relationship of him helping me ask the right questions, right? You know, and I can think of those moments, and those are the kinds of things I want our students to also have in their experience. I want them to, I want them to be formed, not just to get information, but be formed in the way that they interact with the information, the questions they ask, the values they bring to the discussion, and. Yeah, that for me, actually, that's the joy of teaching, watching the lights come on, watching someone's life be changed because now they learn how to do a thing in a way they never knew was possible before. 
It's a mic drop moment right there. Not meant to be a mic drop moment. Dr. Lee, say something about Michael O'Connor and how great he was. <clears throat> Michael O'Connor was awesome. He was scary <laughs> and awesome. Very awesome. He was scary awesome. That's, that's the hard thing. When you ask the open-ended question and the student just says, yeah, or no, or awesome. Or Jesus. Or Jesus. Right. It's interesting. I had a student once that um, in, in Gospels that came up to me. I, they, didn't, they didn't tell, the, tell me this during the class, but uh, you know, it's one of those six months later kind of conversations. A student was in a subsequent class of mine, and they told me that after they took Gospels with me, they, would, they, they promised themselves and their spouse that they would never take another class with me. And you know, he's telling me this story because it was so unsettling. Uh, the class was so unsettling. Um, but it, he said, but I had to take another class with you because, you know, he's got to graduate. And, uh, and he said, and I think I see what you're doing now. You're, you're asking us to think and to, to ask questions and, you know, really appreciating that now. Uh, that, that kind of state of being unsettled in the classroom is actually productive. And I think maybe Scott, that's kind of what you're getting at. Like part of learning is learning to ask the right questions, learning to know what you don't know and being able to understand what you don't know in a new way. And it's, it can be profoundly unsettling at times. Uh, you, you, you went into the classroom thinking you knew stuff and then you found out you didn't know stuff. Uh, and you've got to rebuild this structure that you that you thought was sound, but turns out it, it's not. But the advantage to doing it that way is you're constantly reforming your own vision, your own thought process in terms of scripture. You're, you're tearing down that which is actually not biblical and building up a, a stronger foundation that will serve you better uh, in the years to come. And that, of course, processes we've talked about in other uh, other episodes. That never ends. I mean, we're always uh, we're always doing that in in a sense of reforming our thought and our mind in accordance with Scripture, so that we can be more more like Christ. And that requires the hard work of admitting that we're sinners, that we're faulty, that we're ignorant in certain areas of, of asking the asking the question in a new way that's going to expose us in some sense to the elements. But hopefully, the end goal of that is to be stronger and more perfect. And there is a kind of personality element to this, too. I mean, I think we've all had the experience. There are students who come in and they have a kind of intellectual empathy where they can follow a train of thought. And it's as if they're walking alongside you as you're walking through ideas and they're looking at the same ground the same landscape that you are. And when they ask a question, you realize, man, they're right on top of what I'm saying, right? And I actually do think, I mean, having done this for a few years now, I kind of think there, there's a personality element to that, right? That's not necessarily about someone's intellectual wattage as it is maybe about them just having that ability to come alongside and to see what someone's saying, to like really listen and to pay attention. But I don't think that that means that, therefore, while some people have and some people don't, I think it's, it's also like basketball, where you can practice and you can learn and you can be trained in hearing someone's argument and following their train of thought. And some people are born with it, you know, just like with basketball, you, you've got the Michael Jordans. But if you go out, you know, I'm never going to be as good as Michael Jordan, but if I go out every weekend and spend time on the blacktop like i can get pretty good right and i think in a way that's that's what a class is about i've heard students be discouraged when they realize you know one of their fellow students is getting this all naturally and i go yeah that's that's true but that also doesn't mean you can't do it right you can't also learn how to follow an argument and that's actually in many ways what we're doing is we're we're giving them the skills and the gifts on how to do that and how to ask the right questions so they don't fall into, you know, they don't, they don't fall into error. They don't fall into sloppy thinking, which aren't always the same thing, you know, and yet at the same time, 
you know, be conveying some of these ideas that you just have to have. There's just some kind of base information. If you walk out of RTS and you don't know the difference between Moses and David, we failed a little bit. Right, we failed a good bit on on intellectual inventory. So there also is just the data, the information that you need you need to get across. But it's not just that. And I think for some students, that's a it's a new thing to figure out when they get to seminary. They think they're just going to get a bunch of data, and they don't realize actually that's a small part of the job that we see ourselves doing. And one of the challenges with teaching, I think, languages, and I think Peter can attest to this, is many of our students come in. Uh, having heard from their pastors, right, that languages aren't that important anymore, uh, especially because of all the technology and software out there. And then, Scott, like you said, sometimes students come in and they notice that other students uh, fare or seem to be learning the languages or just the topics much more quickly, right? And so I try to do something that, uh, what's his name, Malcolm Gladwell, he does in Outliers, where he tries to dispel this image that some people are just better than others, right? Um, so to the second point, for instance, when, whenever I begin my language courses, I ask everyone what their background is already in Greek. And uh, that actually is helpful because then the um, students, the other students see that this, this, this peer is not necessarily superior, not necessarily, he may be or he may not be, but he might have taken Greek for one or two years in college. And so that's been helpful. And uh, as far as, I mean, the first one is a little bit tricky uh, when students will say, well, my pastor said, it's actually not that important to learn Greek or Hebrew, right? I'll say, that's true regarding Hebrew. <laughs> Just kidding, I won't say that. But, uh, but, but see, that's a tricky situation because you don't want to discredit the pastor, right? But on the other hand, what I try to say is this. Uh, I say, it's true that sometimes professors will overstate the importance of what he or she is teaching. So I said, that, that's true, right? And do I think... Um, you can still exegete, interpret the Bible well if you're just a good reader. Like for instance, at my church, we have so many lawyers. And in my opinion, they, they're so good at interpreting the Bible. So I say, you know, that's true, right? But then I'll, I'll say, and this is the way I try to navigate comments like that. I'll say, I have yet to meet anyone that's actually good or decent with Hebrew or Greek. And that will say, it's not helpful. And I think that helps with the students because I'm not saying don't listen to your pastor, but I am saying I have yet to meet anyone that has a working knowledge of the languages that says it's, it's useless. If anything, I think the people who master the languages or have a good control of it, they have the most sober assessment of why the languages are helpful. They won't say it's the most important thing, but they won't also make that mistake of saying it's, it's just a waste of time. And so th those are some, I think, unique challenges that I have faced in uh, teaching Greek. Peter, how about you in terms of Hebrew? Yeah, um, I have a similar type of a thing. In fact, one thing I try to do in, in, in my Hebrew exegesis class is take certain key passages in Hebrew and then uh, study it uh, thoroughly as best as we can, applying all the things that we have been working on for the past year. And then I actually will have present a, a preaching outline uh, on that text uh, to show them the at least at least in the context of preaching or possibly even in a Sunday school say so some form of uh, instruction how everything that you just did for that passage in Hebrew is helpful to understand what the meaning of that passage is in general that you can share with your people on any given Sunday. And one reason why I try to do this sort of preaching outline type thing or Bible study outline, depending on what the application immediate setting might be, is to help them see that, yeah, knowing Hebrew actually is helpful. It, it does make a difference and it does make an impact in the, how we understand the word of God. So 
so I face similar challenges in terms of its relevance, and I try to fight against it or, or show how it is relevant in the Hebrew exegesis classes. And that way, not just there, but even in, you know, in the biblical study, in the old core Old Testament classes, uh, I try to do something similar. You can't quite do a preaching outline, but you can definitely show how certain key passages really have to be studied in the original text, and, and, it, makes, and it makes a difference. You know, I've got an interesting story about teaching at a graduate school where we had a mix of, of Christian and unbelieving students and, uh, and a number of Jewish students. And I remember that was a different experience, particularly when you had a Jewish student who knew modern Israeli Hebrew and thought, therefore, that learning biblical Hebrew was going to come quite easily to them, right? And you could almost, you know, bet with 100% accuracy that they would fail their first quiz because they wouldn't prepare, they wouldn't study, and they'd come in with modern Israeli and, uh, and learn very quickly that the language was quite a different language than what we can call classical biblical Hebrew. And that's kind of analogous, I think, to something that happens in the seminary class as well, where you have students who maybe have been reading a lot of Gospel Coalition and Ligonier or, you know, whatever it was that their pastor gave them when they were thinking about seminary, and they'll sometimes come in with a false sense of their own expertise on a topic. And part of the teaching, and I, I'm, the kind, I'm the kind who doesn't do this in a, uh, in a real hostile way, but part of the teaching process is is really just trying to bring people down to the level of realizing that they still have a lot to learn on a topic. You have to kind of gently bring them into a space where they're able to actually listen to what you're teaching and realize the inadequacy of the blog that they read last week covering the topic. I guess I'm so curious. We've talked about, you know, uh, ways of teaching that is sort of different than the classical traditional form of just, you know, you are professor, you are lecturing data and students are taking notes. You give them an exam, term paper, whatever. And we're trying to find creative ways to, uh, to offer alternative uh, ways. Tommy, I was so intrigued by the kind of integration and, and how you were trying to bring in so many different strands in the classroom experience. I actually remember sitting in your class thinking, wow, he's bringing in different ways of trying to teach this stuff. It, it really was um, withering from a mental standpoint because you're trying to think and and analyze and listen at all at the same time. It was really a great learning experience. I guess my question is, uh, and maybe this is just mental laziness on my part. If there's, if there's necessarily, if there's some uh, something wrong, perhaps that perhaps is a way of saying it with just a traditional uh, lecture model. In, in many ways, you know, the Apostle Paul oftentimes talked about himself or or the the people that he ministered to as being sort of his certificate of ministry. I wonder if we can look at ourselves in a similar type of a way. We are the best sort of um, curriculum or by we ourselves are the best sort of uh, means of instruction, not necessarily by the methods we use, by, by, but more of who we are in terms of our values, in terms of what we hold dear and trying to transfer that to, to students, however we can do that, whether it's going to be discussion format or just pure lecture. I guess my question is, do, do we put too much weight on methodology and not enough perhaps on who we are as people, as professors who are trying to teach values and instruction to, uh, to students? Peter, I think that's a great point. I mean, there are different ways to apply it, but this, the same principle holds true for preaching and lecturing. Um, prior to this uh, podcast, I was thinking about this book I read in seminary but I can't find the book anymore. So I'm not sure the book ever existed. <laughs> so it's called uh, Preaching with Freshness, right? And it was apparently a Westminster dissertation that became a book. But the basic idea in this book is that preachers, and I would say professors as well, and this goes to what Gray was saying earlier, unless you're continually learning, your teaching and preaching becomes stale, right? Whereas um, if you're continually learning, it somehow comes out in the way you lecture and preach. 
And there's something about it that people are naturally drawn to. You know, the difference between microwaving dinner versus preparing something fresh. So I think it's a great point that, yeah, methodology does matter. But I also just think that who we are in our character, in our habits, right, that will shape our students very much. And so, yeah, that's a great point. For me, uh, Peter, I, you know, in, in answer to your question, I, my favorite classes in seminary were those, were lecture classes, were just full-on lecture type classes. And I was really frustrated with classes that were more inductive or discussion oriented. Um, and I, and I can spot the students within the first day, I can spot the students who are also frustrated when they, when, that I'm not going to just lecture and, and you, can, you can do both well and you can do both poorly. You can communicate the wrong things through both. And so I, to your point, I think character matters and the reason you're doing it matters. But, you know, the reason you're engaged in whatever methodology you're engaged in is an important component of what students are going to pick up. Because you can lecture in a way that shows humility and is not a data dump and not a download. And that's how the professors that lectured during my seminary days lectured. They were humble. They wanted you to do some second order processing. It wasn't to shut that down. They wanted that. You, you just did it in papers. So I, I appreciate all of that um, kind of the kind of differences there. One of the things that I thought was harder to, to obtain in the classroom in the lecture model or a lecture only model. I'm kind of a hybrid now. I did go full inductive one for for one year <laughs> and and I liked it. It was fun, but it wasn't, uh, I, it, it, there were too many disadvantages. So, so I'm kind of hybrid now. And one of the reasons for that is cultivating an atmosphere in which it's okay to explore issues, okay for students to make mistakes. I mean, one of the things that you have to be content with in a discussion-oriented model is that somebody's going to say something absolutely crazy and you can't just shut them down. Um, you've got to kind of work your way to a better spot and that's really hard. But what I, what I hope that it accomplishes is we're processing things, we're indicating the value of processing things. Students understand now the, not only the answers, but they better understand the question. Um, and they come to the question from the text and not from some sort of outside imposition on the text. And we're doing all of that in an atmosphere where it's required to listen to your neighbor. And those are harder values, I guess, to cultivate in a lecture only format, if that's all you're doing. And so trying to give students a, a, a well-rounded diet of lecture, plus conversation, plus application and pastoral responsibility, th those kinds of things. I have tried to incorporate a seminar, sort of a graduate level seminar approach to uh, each of the classes I do, as opposed to just pure lecture all of the time, where at least one class uh, and, and the students are told ahead of time, you know, here's the, here's the topic, here's some resources you can look at, here are the parameters, you come with the stuff prepared and then I will facilitate the discussion. And uh, oftentimes they are opposing views. Like for example, creation, the creation debate on Genesis one, as you know, has just been going on and on and on and it, it, it just won't die. And it's relevant in many ways, pragmatically in many ways for a lot of our students who are going to be examined by committees of some sort. They're gonna to wanna to know where do they, how do they view Genesis 1? So I thought, you know, in the past I've done it a straight lecture. Here's what this view is. Here's what that view is. Here's what this third view is. And even there's a fourth option out there. And in the past now, I think five or seven years I've, now what I've done is said, I'm not gonna lecture. I'm just gonna, here, here is uh, what we're going to do. We're gonna discuss as a group this text you guys come with your view, you defend it and be prepared to critique others. And then we're gonna talk about it openly. And I facilitate it because uh, as you know, this particular one can be at times very uh, uh, heated, uh, but in the context of the classroom, I have full control to facilitate that. So you're not allowed to get heated. <laughs> I mean, that basically is one of the parameters. We're gonna talk about it graciously, humbly, courteously. And by doing that, I, I'm hoping that they could see 
that they need to have a view, they can respect others who have differing views. And I try to do something like that in each of the classes. So in, in the historical books, it's a historiography. What, what exactly is at stake? What are your challenges? What can you, how can you respond? And poets is, uh, actually, I don't lecture on the song song in, in poets. I actually do song of songs in the form of a seminar as a group class discussion to hear the different views and, and, and things like that. As I think about it, I actually find that a variety does seem to help a bit. I mean, the bulk of it has to be for me lecture. I just got way too much data and information I want them to know that I definitely want them to know that I can do it easily in that way. But there are others that uh, can be more discuss, discussion-based in a different format that uh, some creativity does seem to offer variety and help. You know, I think with the lecture model, there's, there's similarity. Paul mentioned sermons and, and, and homiletics, you know, earlier. There's, there's an interesting kind of genre difference that takes place in sermons. I mean, you can't do a sermon in a fully dialogic style, right? We're not going to do Q and A in 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 the sermon, but you can preach in a way that's conversational. You can preach in a way that brings your your congregation into a dialogue, and you can preach in a way such that this is the information you need to know. Go, uh, you know, the, and those two styles. Neither one of them is right or wrong, but you. There, there is the kind of lecture that brings brings people into a conversation, and then there's the kind of lecture that doesn't. And and part of that's just style and allowing the dialogic nature of just knowledge uh, of learning to to penetrate into what you're communicating to your students. And I've always, Peter, felt that way about your lecturing that it is oriented towards your towards the conversation partner it, it brings you in to to a broader conversation i've appreciated that so as we close out brothers what um what resources would you offer any resources that would be of value to someone who's trying to think through how to be a good student and how to be um you know, how to be a good teacher let me share something that I started about five years ago, at least in terms of how to become a better teacher. We know our fields very well. Well, we pretend to, I don't know, at least speaking for myself. But so sometimes, have you guys heard like that, like the best musicians, the professional musicians are actually the worst instructors. They don't know how to teach it because they, they know their instrument almost too well. And so what's been helpful for me has been learning something new that's totally outside my arena for the first time and writing down things that I've struggled with that seem so simple. And so for instance, like this past year, um, I was just learning a new subject and it just took me a long time to get it. So I began to like dissect what I was struggling with and so forth. Then when I began to think about uh, this fall teaching Greek, I just thought about the process in a different way. So um, for me, what's helpful as an instructor is to always try to learn something a little bit new and then to go through that experience of like what this must be like for a student learning Greek for the first time or like reading Paul for the first time and uh, becoming just more sensitive to it. I think that's an important habit especially as we continue to teach our materials so often, we can just get so um, used to the material and not be sensitive to the unique challenges that a new student would face. There's a great video that was going around a couple of weeks ago and it's a little clip and it's Tiger Woods playing golf with a group of friends and he's, he's trying to solve this problem in his, you know, in his wedge uh, or something like that. And the, 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 the video assumes that you know all of this in the background. So it starts with he hits the shot and, it's, and it goes where he wants it to go. And one of his friends says, all right, so what did you do differently there? And Tiger Woods says, well, you know, uh, I just pulled back on it. I just pulled it back. You know, I can just feel it in my hand. And the guy looks at him and goes, can you explain anything like a normal person? You know, and I thought about that. 
you know, the idea of getting an artist to explain why they do art the way they do, or to get Tiger Woods to explain his wind shot, you know, to your point, Paul, there, there can be something when you're enamored and you're deep in a subject, it can make it particularly difficult to teach it. And, you know, I think that's actually how you know the difference between an expert and someone who's more of kind of like a popularizer or, uh, you know, a noob to a topic is that there is that sense of depth you get from the expert. And yet the expert does have to be regularly thinking, particularly if you're in this role as a teacher and you're not nearly a researcher, but you're in this role as a teacher, you have to be able to come back up to the top of the mountain, right? And, and yell down to the crowd who hasn't been around to the other side yet. Okay, so to that end, I, you know, I, I've read a few books. I can't, honestly, I've read a good bit on pedagogy. And I, I think probably the sum, the sum results of reading a lot of that, a lot of books on that has probably helped me out. There's not one book in particular that I can say this is really excellent. I think, you know, for a while there, uh, Mortimer Adler's book on how to read a book was being touted a good bit online. And I still think that's a valuable resource for learning how to think and follow a train of thought, whether it's in a classroom or it's in a in written format. You know, actually, to be honest, the writing of John Frame and Vern Poitras may have been deeply helpful in how I do pedagogy. In other words, how I think about what I'm doing, whether it's Poitras's monic um, theology or Frame's multi-perspectivalism, that has been deeply influential on in the way that I present material and so that I know that I'm kind of coming at it from a variety of angles and I don't have easy blind spots that I could have identified ahead of time. But for me also, it's just listening to teachers who I really enjoy listening to and I want to teach like. A lot of it is, is about me listening to people who I enjoy and are clear and trying to teach like they teach. You know, the one, one that comes to mind just as I'm thinking about this is the linguist uh, John McWhorter I love the way he teaches. I love the way he talks about language. And whenever I listen to him, I think I want to teach like that. I want to have that kind of clarity, that kind of breadth and application. And sometimes I just listen to him just to kind of reconnect again with that way of talking about any subject, you know? So I think that's another big thing is find teachers you like and listen to them, right? And, and, and let them kind of mentor you just by doing it. Uh, one one book that I came across, and I don't recall the author. I just remember the title. It was just Lit, L-I-T, Lit. And it was actually a similar type of a book on how to read a book. And uh, and and I'm glad you mentioned your book, Scott, because uh, uh, sometimes to know how to read an academic book is, is a skill that needs to be learned. And I found uh, this book helpful in that regard. I also agree to with you about listening to other instructors and trying to see how they do things. You know, I've sat in all of your guys' classes with the exception of Gray, <laughs> Lord willing, that'll change. Uh, and have all picked up a little things here and there on how you have all done things, how you have used your, we've all uh, to a certain extent have lecture outlines and how you have done that. And that's been really helpful. W one resource I think that is good, at least for students, uh, and I try to do this is uh, sample term papers. I, I try to provide one in every class that I do because students will always ask because the term paper is such a, uh, a huge part of their final grade. And, and I'll get, and we get lots of students, as you know, who have been in the private sector for however many amount of years and they haven't done a, an academic assignment in, in several years and they don't know what they're look what we're looking for. And it's hard to give them a sample exam other than, you know, sample questions perhaps, but we can't give them the answers or, or how to write that answer per se, but a sample paper we can give. And so it's sort of to give them a guideline of what exactly or what sort of uh, type of paper uh, we're looking for. And so I, I try to provide like two or uh, one or two in every class that I give just to help students to know this is this is what I'm looking for. This is a quality paper. If you want a good solid grade, then you want to write something like this. Not exactly this, of course, but something like this. That's all very good. And I agree with everybody's uh, examples and sources here, especially the one about listening to whoever you want to uh, learn from. I think that's very good advice. Uh, two books that I could probably recommend was one that I mentioned before, John Webster's Culture of Theology, because he talks about what is required for theological institutions. And he 
says that he's trying, he's trying to think in a utopian fashion. Here's what I would want to have in a theological institution. So that was really helpful for him to sketch it all out. And uh, secondly, I think Tim Keller's preaching book, which was from his uh, RTS 2016, RTS Jackson, I believe, 2016 uh, lectures there. And there could be found on YouTube as well, but I think his preaching book was really, really helpful for me as well to learn about how to communicate to the heart. That's great. Well, thanks, friends. It's been good talking to you, and um, I look forward to continuing this discussion next week. Until then, take care. For me, that was basically the lecture model. You know, the, the oh, sorry, my dog's about to go nuts. I think he's, I think he's okay. Okay.